Well, again, a warm welcome to you. I'm glad that you're here on this kind of sunny but very cold and icy morning. We're so glad that you're with us in worship today here at Kingswood. And again, we welcome our online congregation as well. So we're in this sermon series of Face It, uh, you know, seeking truth and embracing change. And uh, last week we talked about the Magi. Remember those three, maybe, probably more. There were three gifts uh, who traveled to experience the baby Jesus or the child Jesus and to um, see him and worship him. And yet they faced some really interesting challenges. A long journey, King Herod who wanted to do away with Jesus, uh, and in the end, they took a different journey. And we talked about how, in many ways, they taught us some lessons that sometimes when we're facing the challenges of our life or the challenges of the world or, or the decisions we have to make, sometimes we have to go another route, right? Or we're faced with uh, these hardships, and we have to be open to the prompting of the Spirit to find another way. Today, uh, we encounter a story about uh, a, a prophet, Elijah, one of the greatest prophets, right? I mean, just an amazing prophet to both the northern and southern kingdoms because they've split by now, and an attempt to bring the people of God back to just a rich and faithful relationship with God. They continued to wonder. They continued to trust other gods, other kings, other nations, and God is constantly calling them back, and Elijah was one of the greatest of those prophets. I think a lot about this story because Elijah is lifted up as one of the greatest prophets, and yet he comes to a place where he can't do it anymore, right? He's at his end. And uh, I don't know about you, I don't know if you've ever been at your end, or if you feel like you might be at your end, or maybe today you're at your end, right? And maybe you have said, maybe you haven't, but I, I, I've had this experience, I just can't do it anymore. Anybody, right? I, I can't wake up another day, I can't take another thing at work, I can't deal with another crisis, I can't deal with another demand from my family. I, I, I can't do it anymore. Maybe you're one of those few that has never experienced that, but I have, right? Just And in, and in many ways, have you ever been in that place of just utter exhaustion, right? It's hard to even get out of bed. It's hard to have the energy to make breakfast. It's hard to do anything because you are just at your end. And so I don't know about you, but for me... I just want to run away, right? And I have dreams of that periodically, of just getting in the car, though I might not have done that today on the ice, but, uh, you know, that to get in the car or jump on a plane, but probably not now because of COVID, but um, maybe just go to the guest room. I don't know what it is, but something that would take me out of my current reality and help me to escape. I think I was about third or fourth grade uh, when, I, I don't know what's prompted it, but my parents had gotten on my last nerve. Has that ever happened to you, right? Maybe you've gotten on your kid's last nerve, right? And uh, I, I was in third or fourth grade, and uh, for some reason, I, I remember saying clearly, I've had it. And my grandparents lived about a quarter of a mile up the road on the farm, and there was a path through the field to their house, which we often woke, uh, walked. But that day, I just somehow announced to my parents, I'm done. And I, I don't remember all that I said, but I said, I'm leaving. Now, I'm surprised. I think I kind of thought my parents would say, no, you're not. Go to your room. They said, okay, where are you going? I'm going to my grandparents. I'm going up the road. I can't take it here anymore. Well, good luck. That's what they said. So I had, I don't remember those little metal lunch boxes. Anybody ever have one of those? Mine had peanuts on the front of it, right? 
And I opened it up, and I filled the thermos with water. I don't know where I thought I was going. I packed, I think, a pair of underwear and a couple of other things in that little lunchbox and maybe made myself a sandwich. And I took my little lunchbox, and I said, I'm out of here. And I started the journey. Now, what I didn't know is that my parents were looking out their window to make sure I was okay. And what I didn't know is that they'd call my grandparents to expect this very unhappy visitor But I remember that walk seemed longer than I remembered. And finally, I arrived at their house, and I knocked on the door, and my grandfather said, what are you doing here? And I said, I've had it. I can't do it anymore. Mom and Dad are driving me crazy. It was probably my brother and sister. That's who I blame. But nonetheless, I said, I'm done. And my grandfather said, okay, come on in. And my grandmother did what she often did. She pulled out pound cake and milk. That was the cure, right? And we sat at the kitchen table, and they just listened to me rant on, right? I had more pound cake and milk, and finally, after a while, we we talked some more, and I think we watched a TV show. And then my grandfather said, what are you going to do? Why are you here? And I said, well, I, I, I just, I've had it. And he said, it's time to go back home. So we got in his car, and he drove the quarter of a mile <laughs> And he dropped me off. And it was one of those hard things, you know what I'm saying? You ever had that walk of shame, like, you're, I'm back and I got to go in? And my parents opened the door and, oh, you're back. And uh, I was. It was kind of a silly story. But I remember the feelings of just wanting out. And in many ways, I think Elijah has that same, same experience because he's at his end. It's far more intense than a fight with my brother or the need to pack my lunchbox with a few essentials. Elijah really did face some hard situations. If we looked in 1 Kings, and if you have your Bible or if you want to turn to the one in the pew in front of you, you can read uh, chapter 18. In fact, I would encourage you to do that today. In 18, Elijah is dealing with two key people that are his enemies. One is King Ahab the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, the kingdoms had split after Solomon. Ahab was kind of weak leader, but he was also kind of strategic, and he had married a woman named Jezebel. And Jezebel was uh, from the city of Sidon, which is in present-day Lebanon, and she was probably a Phoenician or a Philistine, and she worshipped the fertility god that was common in Canaan called Baal. Once It was really more of a political marriage, if you will, because it protected him from those north of him, But they married, she moved into the palace, and she began to say, well, this religion you have is fine, but we're going to embrace mine. And so she began to promote Baal in other places, and and of course everyone began to worship Baal because that's what the king and queen did both in their summer and their winter palaces. What happened is, is that eventually Elijah takes on a challenge with the prophets of Baal, and you can read that in 18. And it's a pretty big show, though they, they offer themselves to the god Baal and there's total silence. And then Elijah does an offering to God and there's a fire and water sucked up and it's an amazing, unbelievable show. And it, it's clearly a victory. And in fact, the people say, we've been wrong and they turn back to God and it's a glorious moment. But it's interesting then, because they've been in a drought, uh, dear Elijah, then out of that whole experience, prays. And God eventually sends the rain, and they begin their journey back to Jezreel, where Ahab and uh, Jezebel have their summer palace. You'd think this would be the most glorious thing in the world, right? 
great victory, good coverage on the news, right? People are tweeting about this thing that happened on Mount Carmel. I mean, this is a super victory for him. But as he travels back and somehow he gets ahead on the freeway of King Ahab and he gets back to Jezreel, uh, Ahab comes back, and Ahab's a little bit of a tattletale. Oh, Jezebel, you'll never guess what happened. There was this uh, showdown of Baal versus God, and God won, and all your prophets have been killed, and they're gone. And then we pick up in chapter 19. Jezebel heard that all Elijah had done and how he'd killed all the prophets, and then Jezebel sent a messenger, key word, to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So basically, Jezebel says, you're going to pay for this, right? Now, I find it interesting. If she's the queen, why didn't she just send somebody to take him out, right? Or why didn't she send a bailiff to arrest him and bring him back to the prison, right? But I think Jezebel wanted to taunt him and create an enormous amount of fear in him. And it's interesting. Now, remember, he's just had this great victory, right? He's just had this great moment, and the, and the drought is over, and the people have turned back. But we're told that, that when he got this message, he was afraid. Or in one translation, he was terrified. And in another, he was fe fearful for his life. And he got up and fled for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there. Now, what's interesting is, remember, there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and he's traveled all the way to Beersheba, which is in another kingdom, Judah. No longer in Israel with Ahab as the king. Uh, and you'd say, okay, he's going to stay there. That's a safe place. But he is so fearful and so at his end that what Elijah does is he leaves his messenger, his assistant, who in the previous story has been a key role. He says, you stay here. I'm going further. And he goes into the desert, deep within the Sinai Desert, and there he sits down under a solitary broom tree. Now, you can look up broom trees when you get home, or if you're bored right now, you could Google that on your phone. But the reality is broom trees are not that great. They're desert plants, and they're not very large or luxurious. But he had just kind of come to his end. He sat under the broom tree, and he said to God, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. What a quick shift from this great victory and this amazing truth and this transformation of, that had happened on Mount Carmel in the north and now to be in the desert under a broom tree within a matter of days and saying, I'm fed up, I can't make it, I don't want to live anymore. I, I really am moved by this great prophet Elijah who's come to this place of feeling like there's no other way out. And then Elijah does what we often do when we're at our end. He lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. He just fell asleep. Suddenly an angel, the word can also be messenger, much like the messenger who Jezebel sent, the same Hebrew word. Suddenly an angel touched Elijah and said to him, get up and eat. And he looked, and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. Now I don't know if you've been in the desert or if you've been in a wilderness place, but it's rare that you wake up and somebody's provided you a jar of cold water and a beautiful, beautiful croissant from Deerfield's Bakery. Amen, right? You know what I'm saying? What's interesting is, uh, there's an interesting, important thing about the words here. The, the, the cakes have been cooked on hot coals, right? And you're like, yeah, okay, big deal. But it's interesting. 
That word for coals or hot stones is not found anywhere else in the Old Testament but one other place. And that's in Isaiah 6 in which Isaiah, another prophet, you may remember says, God, I'm not worthy to be your prophet. And in this dream, God sends a Sarah, a, 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 an angel basically who comes and takes a hot coal off the altar and puts it to Isaiah's lips and says, your lips are clean, you can do this, right? You remember that story, the call of Isaiah? So it's interesting, that same reaffirmation of call, the coals on the altar are the coals that made the hot bread. He ate and drank, and then he went to sleep again. Now I want to say that one of the kind of interesting lessons here that we often miss is that God doesn't immediately say, Elijah, get your act together and get rolling, right? God gives Elijah some time to rest, to sleep, to eat, to drink water, to take a break in the wilderness. He doesn't push him immediately back to action. He allows Elijah the time to sleep and rest and eat. And so he got up and ate and drank, and then he went back to sleep. The angel of the Lord, so we get a greater clarity of who this messenger is, came a second time and he said, get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. And Elijah got up and ate and drank, and then he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. And at that place he came to a cave and he spent the night there. And what's important is there's a second meal, right? less detail about the meal, but we know that Elijah eats, and the messenger says, you've got more of a journey, not back to, not back to Jezebel, but actually to Mount Horeb. Now, I know you have already put that together, but let me just help you. Mount Horeb in Deuteronomy is Mount Sinai in the other Old Testament books, and you'll remember at Mount Sinai, somebody got a vision from God. Anybody know? Moses, right. Moses is the one who, remember, on Mount Sinai gets the call, and it's also that Moses goes back to Mount Sinai, or Mount Horeb, has two different names, and receives the law. So it's at this very sacred mountain that Elijah takes this 40-day, 40-night journey, much like 40 years of wilderness wandering, 40 nights and 40 days on an ark. Do you see all the connections? And Elijah, after those 40 days and 40 nights of traveling in the wilderness, uh, based on one meal, I can't go half a day without a meal, right? Uh, he ends up in this mountain, the sacred mountain of Mount Horeb, and he goes in a cave and spends the night. So it's interesting that Elijah, though he says, I'm done and I can't do this anymore, is at least open to the promptings of God to take a journey to this sacred place and see what comes next. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah answered, I've been very zealous for you, Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Elijah doesn't really change his attitude. In fact, he actually feels very hopeless, right? I've been zealous. I've done everything you've asked of me. I've been as faithful as you've encouraged me to be. And then the reality is it doesn't matter. These people still do what they do. And they're seeking to end my life. And I'm done. But God doesn't stop there. God doesn't say, okay, Elijah. Or let, we'll find somebody else. Or whatever. God says this. Okay, Elijah, go out and stand on this mountain before me. And I'm going to pass by. And this is what happens. 
There was a great wind, so strong, that it split the mountain and broke rocks into pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after that, there was a great earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after that, an earth, after that earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was sheer silence. Sheer silence. When Elijah heard the silence, he wrapped his face in his mantle. That would have been the cloth that he wrapped around himself. And he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And then there came a voice to him. Translation, kind of a murmuring, a whispering voice. And the voice said to Elijah, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah answers in the same way. I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. And then the Lord does something different. No cakes, no water, nor sleeping under a broom tree, no appearance in the way that God had appeared before, but God says directly to Elijah, Elijah, return your way by the wilderness road. So he goes a different route. Go to Damascus, and there you'll anoint King Haziel over Aram, and then you'll anoint Jehu over uh, Israel, and you shall anoint Elisha, son of Japheth, of Abel as the prophet in your place. And then he goes on. It's interesting. I, I think this story's powerful because it teaches us a few things about when we get to that place where we don't know how we can go on. We learn that sometimes it's important to take a break, to find a broom tree, if you will, to sleep and eat and care for ourselves, especially when we've been through something traumatic or hard or a difficult decision or we're trying to run for something we know we need to face. Anybody? Amen? Right? We also know that God doesn't give up on Elijah. I mean, in many ways, God could have said, Elijah, I'm done with you. If you can't see this through, I'll find somebody else. That doesn't mean God won't find other people. But God continues to engage Elijah. And in fact, the first time when he says, Elijah, what are you doing here? Elijah kind of pleads how horrible things are. They're actually not completely true. He's not the only prophet left. And, and God has been faithful in many ways to bring the people back. But because Elijah is so tired and so burned out and so done, he can't see it. Anybody? Right? And then we know that he has to kind of get away in a retreat. He has to get away from all of the noise and get away from the stuff and then really entune himself to what God is saying. And it's not in the, the storm and it's not in the earthquake and it's not in the fire. Though God is present there, God doesn't use the big show that he did in chapter 18 to make a point because Elijah's seen all that and it didn't make a difference. Amen. In fact, the place where God can speak directly into Elijah's burnout and fear and denial and uncertainty and kind of undone is in this very quiet, murmuring voice. Elijah needs to go to Mount Horeb, to a sacred place. Elijah needs to be in the silence of a cave, and Elijah there is able to finally hear what God will say. But God asked the question, why are you here? What are you doing here? 
Why have you come to this place? And the words don't come across as judgmental or Elijah, you're a jerk. They come across out of a deep sense of compassion. And then on that second, when when Elijah says the same thing over, God gets it that Elijah in some ways is done. And Elijah's journey needs to shift. And so he invites him to do something completely different. He doesn't say, go back and take Jezebel on. He says, anoint some new kings and then head over here and you're going to meet a young man named Elisha. And you're going to anoint him to be the new prophet. And that's indeed what he does. And in the story, as you know, it ends. Elijah goes and there's Elisha. Now, Elisha comes from a pretty wealthy family. For those of you who grew up on farms, he has 12 oxen. Isn't that amazing? My word, right? And he's out with those 12 oxen, probably 12 men helping him do the plowing of the field. And as he comes, uh, Elijah comes along, he does a very strange thing. You remember that mount- mantle he wrapped himself in in the early part of the story? He just throws it over Elisha. What a strange thing. If I did that to you, you'd kind of freak out. Amen, right? But Elisha sees it for what it is. That in fact, Elijah is completing his time and now out of this journey of burnout is inviting someone else to take on the mantle, to take on the role. And Elisha does an interesting thing. He says, okay, I'll do it, but I need to say goodbye to my mom and dad. So he goes to his mom and dad and kisses them and says, thank you. And then he comes back and then he does a bizarre thing. Those oxen, he kills them. He takes the yokes, which are made of wood, he makes a huge fire, and he cooks the oxen, serves it to the whole village. They have a big celebration, and then he leaves everything he knows. It's almost like a sacrificial meal to say, I am no longer this, I'm no longer the farmer, I'm now the prophet. And we know that later on, that mantle will be passed on to Elisha as Elijah is taken into heaven. Remember that story. What's interesting is Elijah thinks he can run away. He thinks he can bury his head in the sand. He thinks he can hide in a cave or live under a broom tree or just say, God, take my life, I'm done. And God said, no, we're not working that way. (laughs) God, in fact, says, Elijah, I love you so much, I'm going to continue to engage you. You can take some time to rest. You can take some time to flee. You can take some time to be in sabbatical. But the reality is I'm going to still speak to you and you still have a role in the whole big picture. And in the end, Elijah, though I think wounded and still recovering, does indeed follow those instructions. And Elisha becomes his successor. But he can't run away. So friends, as we begin the new year, I'm going to ask you a hard question. Are you running away from something? Are you avoiding something? Are you putting off a decision or a project or a health issue or a relationship issue, or a vocational issue, or a faith issue, that you just keep putting your head in the sand and saying, I'll deal with it another day. Anybody? Right? I remember one one of my friends was having difficulty in her marriage, and she called me and said, can I just come and stay with you for a few days? And so she did, and I let her stay on the, and she said, I just need some time apart. But what it became clear was she just didn't want to face the reality that her marriage might possibly be over. And so day one, and then I would listen, and day two, and I made dinner, and, you know, I didn't cook cakes on a hot coal, but you know what I'm saying, right? And, and I just kept making meals and so forth, and, and day two, and day three, and day four. And, and frankly, in my head, I wanted to go, oh, how long are you staying, right? You know? 
Eventually she came out one morning and I said, I, I, I don't have a problem with you staying, but when, when are you going to go home? I don't want to go home. I don't want to be a part of this. And I said, I love you so much, but you know you have to go back. This isn't going to solve itself. And so it took another day, but she packed up and she left. It wasn't easy. It didn't turn out the way she hoped. But she said, months, months later, thank you for sending me back to the truth and helping me to see what I needed to change. I've been there, right? Several years ago, I was in a ministry setting that I'd loved for four years, but I was miserable. I went to stay with a friend too, right? And I was thankful to her. After four days, she said, when are you leaving? I don't want to go back. I want to stay under the broom tree. Can I have another jar of water? Could you cook me a cake on a hot coal? And this very quiet voice said, James, it's time to change. It's clear it's time for a new path. It's clear it's time for a new road. And I know you're afraid, but it's time to go. I packed up my lunchbox and I headed back to Chicago and I answered a new call to ministry because it was time. So you can't run. You can't hide. Because God will continue to pursue you to lead you to the place where your life might be joyful and complete. So it's time to go. Amen.